0: Europe is our ally, Japan is our ally, but they still have these real politic issues. Their economies will collapse if they don't transition away from dollar monopoly in energy. And so the risk of major inflation in the US, risk of major collapse in uh, creditor nations, risk of war. These, I mean, these are sort of, you know, sort of these big fourth turning type issues. I think we're gonna see CPI in the United States uh, at in excess of 10%. And I think that will force the Fed
1: into sort of uh, the end game, if you will. You see, you get into this death-death spiral. All right, we've got a lot of ground to cover today. I thought it would actually be helpful to kind of rehash this great Uh, thesis that you have. Uh, And then a lot of the different topics that we're going to go down are going to be built directly on top of that. But you have this great explanation for kind of the transition from the system, the post Bretton Woods system, right, that began at the end of World War II, the departure from the gold standard. If you could just kind of walk us through your great geopolitical framework right now and that transition from one monetary system into another. Maybe we can start with that and then kind of branch off.
0: Sure. So yeah, you go back to the Bretton Woods uh, conference, monetary conference toward the end of World War II. And like you said, Harry Dexter White for the US and um, uh, John Maynard Keynes uh, with the English, uh, two two, uh, competing proposals for this structure of the post-war system. Uh, Keynes was, uh, you, you trade basically, it was called the Bancor. His system centered around the Bancor, which was a neutral settlement asset uh, whose price would float in all currencies, and you would settle deficits and surpluses in Bancor. Uh, which, so then, for example, if you apply to today, the Americans have been running deficits really since 1970. Uh, almost without fail. There have been a few years in between. But for basically 50 straight years of deficits, again, to slightly oversimplify, um, th- that never would have been allowed to occur because the US would have had to sell dollars to buy Bancor to settle those deficits each year. And we would have weakened the dollar through the Bancor against our competing uh, currencies, against our trade partners. And we would have gotten more competitive. And so you would have had two things. you w- It would have driven a greater real-time balancing between consumption uh, and production uh, here in the U.S. Obviously, we've basically offshored a lot of our production over the last 50 years and and focused on consumption and really focused on U.S. government consumption in particular. So that would have forced um, greater fiscal discipline on the U.S. government. It would have kept a lot of these middle and working class jobs that um, sh- uh, that were uh, offshored elsewhere over the last 50 years, that would have kept them here, that would have uh, led to less wealth inequality. It would have left a probably higher... Uh, probably lower corporate profits all else equal uh, greater income and wealth equality and probably a lot lower political tension in the US if we had gone with this bank system hmm. uh, the competing system was the key, uh, excuse me the Harry Dexter white system which was uh, the dollar is the center of the system all of the currencies are tied to the dollar and the dollars tied to gold at thirty five dollars an ounce and that was the system we went with out of real politic uh, for lack of a better reason which is to say um, We had most of the men. We had almost all the industrial production. We were the world's biggest oil producer. We had all the gold. Uh, And so what we said went. Uh, And that system worked for about 25 years. But once the rest of the world was back on their feet, they were very productive. We also did some things to run deficits on purpose to help get them the dollars to get them back on their feet uh, early in the days after World War II. But by the late 50s or so, Germany, Japan, in particular, uh, other parts of Europe to a lesser extent, they're inherently very productive economies. And they started running more bigger and bigger trade surpluses against the US. US kept running trade deficits. And then we made some uh, policy choices, uh, both from a foreign standpoint, in terms of the war in Vietnam, and domestically with Lyndon Johnson's guns and butter, uh, or Great Society, I should say, or what they called guns and butter. So we're running these big deficits. uh, And the peg to the dollar uh, of gold at $35 an ounce began to be called into question because it's pretty simple math. You can look around and the Americans have all these dollar debts outstanding sitting in foreign exchange reserves with our trading partners after you know, deficits we'd run from call it 1947 or eight through 1970. Uh, and they knew the pile of gold we had and uh, they can do just pretty simple math to say pile of gold times $35 and compare that number to the debt we have outstanding. And it wasn't close to being the same number. The debts outstanding were, I want to say, like four times the size by the time uh, 70 or 71 rolled around. So... It was obvious that we weren't going to be able to maintain the deal. So either we were going to devalue the dollar so against gold so that we could redeem these debts in gold, or, uh, as it turns out, we went another direction, which was to simply unilaterally close the gold window. It was supposed to be temporary, uh, it was 50 years ago, 51 years ago. I have directed Secretary Connolly to suspend temporarily the convertibility of the dollar into gold or other reserve assets. Except in amounts and conditions determined to be in the interest of monetary stability, and in the best interest of the United States. Um, I guess, in the grand scheme of history, that is temporary. Um, but uh, you know, I means wait, maybe what a week? A week in in middle school history class, but <laughs> right. Um, <Less>. The uh, <laughs> excuse me. The uh, um, the 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 that then led to this system where. Um, no one knew what the dollar was worth. We then basically uh, get into an arrangement with the Saudis to price their oil only in dollars. Uh, and that came to uh, be a key ha- a, a key hallmark, I guess, of, of a system that came to be known as the petrodollar system, where uh, basically dollar surpluses in oil were recycled back into euro dollar markets, financial markets. Um, It led to a supersizing of the U.S. financial system, U.S. financial assets. It led to a hollowing out of the U.S. industrial base of the U.S. middle and working classes. um, As basically the U.S.'s biggest exports became dollars and treasury bonds. um, And we had to export dollars and treasury bonds. We had to run deficits uh, to export dollars and treasury bonds to our trade partners. And that led to this 50 straight years of deficits basically unbroken That I referenced before. And so those were the two systems. That's how it has evolved. That is how energy is a key linchpin within that. And that brings us sort of to where, you know, I would say 2008. uh, Let me back up a second. The other key linchpin to the petrodollar system is that the dollar was effectively kept as good as gold for oil from 1973 through call it 2003. So nearly 30 years um, because if you look back historically, the price of oil in gold is remarkably consistent. Remarkably right. consistent. It's 10 to 30 barrels of oil per ounce of gold for centuries. Um, certainly decades, but 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 more like centuries. Uh for 30 years, the dollar was effectively kept as good as gold for oil, where we saw oil trade between 15 and $30 a barrel for nearly 30 years. Mm-hmm. Uh by and large. And a big part of that was the US monetary policy. We were the biggest consumer of oil. We we're the biggest importer of oil. Uh, and so when we slowed our economy, you know, when, when oil would get near $30 a barrel, the Fed would hike, US economy would slow. When it was fit near 15, US Fed would cut, US economy would increase. There was this period of time where basically um, oil was kept as good as gold for oil. Excuse me, the dollar was kept as good as gold for oil. So we broke the sever to gold but in the end because we were managing the dollar to be as good as gold for oil people were kind of like well you know it's it's not quite the same but ultimately we don't need gold we need oil and as long as the dollar holds its value relative to uh, oil okay we'll do that system 2005 uh 2006 you uh, you came to a critical moment where U.S. is a cr- quickly becoming not the biggest importer of oil anymore. China is. Uh, so you've got rapid growth in China. You've got geological issues in oil. Really, I would call the first peak cheap oil, sec- uh, peak cheap oil uh, era. Um, you know, Matt Simmons wrote Twilight in the Desert in 2005. A mm-hmm. number of big oil fields peaked and rolled over. Uh, it was pre-shale in the U.S. Uh, the gist of it was that. What oil was saying the US needed to do was raise rates significantly. What the domestic US economy was saying the Fed needed to do was to cut rates drastically because the housing bubble was popping uh, after you know, the modicum of rate heights, they they did where they went through, call it whatever, 04 through 06. And it came to a head in 07. You started having uh, big problems in the mortgage market. The Fed faced a choice, either hike because oil was at 70 and going higher, or cut because the housing market and the banks were increasingly in trouble, and they cut. They cut rates. Oil went from 70 to 150 in nine months. And that then, I think, framed for everybody, and in particular, the reaction post-2008, this reaction of uh, the U.S. had the choice to really go through austerity, break up the big banks, settle the problems with capitalism, which was, hey, wipe out the equity holders, have the bondholders take over the big banks, take over any of the, the uh, uh, companies that were in in uh, financial trouble. But we didn't. We just printed the whole thing. We backstopped that we printed it, Backstop print. And we showed the world that basically when push came to shove uh, from 2007 through 2010 that the United States will not manage the value of the dollar relative to energy prices, in particular commodity prices more broadly. We are going to take care of ourselves, and that was a problem in particular for nations like any nation that imports oil uh, but runs a trade surplus with the U.S. So that's China, that's Japan, that's the EU, India to a lesser extent, uh, and for any nation that sells oil to the uh, because oil is only priced in dollars, so uh, the Saudis get a little bit of a special deal, uh, but the Russians have a big problem with that, obviously, and so that's that uh, that fundamental tension between the Americans managing the dollar for. As, as a domestic uh, economy issue versus a uh, global utility issue, a global reserve currency, um, that has led to some tensions to start moving the system over the last 15 years uh, in a direction towards change.
1: Yeah. I think that that tension um, between what the Federal Reserve is doing and whether or not they're managing interest rates for the benefit domestically of US citizens versus for the benefit of the world, right, as the, the issuer of the global reserve currency is a fundamental one. And honestly, I the reason I love talking to you about this is you were kind of the one that showed me, the, the way that I kind of think about this is the one thing that every country needs is energy. It's the most important raw material input for basically every economy on the world in the world so what you don't want is an asset liability mismatch where if you have an economy it needs x amount of dollars in oil which is basically your liability you want your asset which is your money supply to run to be relatively constant to your liability so that's why you had that relationship between gold and oil and i think what we tried to do right if i'm understanding you correctly is we tried to replicate with that the dollar we said to everyone in the world this dollar is basically going to roughly buy you the same amount of oil so that's why like that, I think it's very interesting where you where you went back to the 1970s, you said, was Volcker really doing it to raising interest rates to stamp out inflation, or was he honoring that and you know, that implicit promise to the rest of the world that we were going to keep as good as a dollar for gold for oil, basically? And we basically broke that promise in 2008. What are the ramifications of breaking that promise? Because you know, I want to get into you, you, I I agree with your thoughts entirely on. The breaking of the foreign exchange window, right, uh, that we did with Russia when we confiscated their their central bank assets. So, what are the ramifications of us essentially breaking this social contract with the rest of the world?
0: They're they're, they're, they're pretty far reaching. Um, <laughs> I would say so. Yeah. Ultimately, <laughs> historically, when you get these big systemic changes, you get wars. Um, right. So this is, it's just a measure of geopolitical power. Ultimately, um, uh, you know, it's a, it goes back to the phrase, you know, the rich, the rich do what they will. And then the poor sort of suffer what they must or whatever it is. Right. Uh, or the, uh, the, the, the yeah. strong do what they will and the weak suffer what they must or whatever the case is. And mm-hmm. so this, what we're talking about really, when you say good as gold for oil, keeping the dollar good as gold for oil is keeping the dollar, Neutral to positive in real rate terms relative to oil, right? Mm. So, if oil prices go up five percent per year, uh, you better keep rates at five percent minimum, um, and that's fine in 1982 um, when you were very under uh, or very underlevered as a U.S. sovereign um, at the at the sovereign balance sheet. Five percent rates with U.S. debt to GDP at these levels, it, it simply it, it can't happen. Mm -hmm. Um, at the same time, if you're China and your oil bill goes up 5% per year, while your interest rates, you know, in real terms, uh, your economy is going to collapse. We're seeing that in real time accelerated in in a very compressed time scale in Europe, right? The European economy is going to collapse if electricity, if natural gas keeps doing what it's doing. There's no mystery to that. You're, you're talking about input costs that are Starting to hit levels that are overshadowing overshadowing your the, the, the profit margins. They're just going to shut down industry, right? Mm-hmm. So um, we're seeing it in a compressed timescale. But energy is this master resource. So again, you have this fundamental tension between the U.S. cannot afford to pay positive real rates relative to price growth of energy needed to drive new supply, and the producers of energy, and that the the creditors to the U.S. that import energy cannot afford to not get paid a positive real rate on right. their savings. Uh, and so when you've had these types of tensions historically, uh, you get war and one side goes and kills all the others and whoever's left says, here's how it's going to go. Uh, oh. And that's, you know, sort of how it went really. If you think about world war II as just an extension of world war one, when you go into world war one, it was really about the Germans who departed from the UK system uh, after seeing the the the, uh, the panic and crisis of 1873, where you had this 20-year-long depression, the Germans departed from this free. There was the, the English came out with this system. It was called free trade, right? Nearly mm-hmm. free trade, uh, and neo-liberal you know, economics. And uh, you know, stop me when this starts to sound familiar. They 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 offshored the production to their low-cost colonies and made it very difficult for the UK middle and working class to be able to compete with these low-cost waged colonies of the uh, uh, of the British Empire. Uh, and so it led to this big increase in wealth inequality, and it was really good for the financiers in the city of London. Um, and after you had this financial crisis in 1873, everyone's still on the gold standard, so there's no sort of step in and just print gold. Uh, so you go through this long depression, and the Germans at some point go, this doesn't make sense. This is stupid. <laughs> right. And they start running a much more centralized economy. Um, they start investing in infrastructure. Uh, they start investing in their own military and their own navy. And they they build the uh, the they start looking to build a Berlin to Baghdad railway uh, where they would be able to ship oil from Baghdad to Berlin, never hitting the waterways to completely neuter the 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 British Empire's navy, which was a key advantage for them. And so there's this, you know, it's like the Belt and Road today. It's like China rising today. It's all it's it's very much rhyming in history. My point in all of this is that. If World War II, where we started, this last system was just really an extension of World War One, which was driven by this rising competition between the Germans and the UK over two competing economic systems then that gives you an idea where this where this can possibly go. And, and you know if I'd have said this to you f- five years ago, four years ago, probably would have said, eh, I don't think anybody has taken this stuff lightly anymore, no. uh, uh, given what we're seeing with Taiwan, with Russia, et cetera. And so it's a very dangerous period in time, again, because there are these fundamental tensions. US politicians will get voted out of office because there will be a, a face peeling inflation in the US that will ultimately be very very good for the sectors of the economy that have sort of been in the spanking machine for the last 40 50 years. The middle class, the working class, you'll have wage growth. It'll be it'll not be good for profit margins in percentage terms. Profit margin in percentage terms at the corporate level, they'll shrink. Uh, profit dollars will probably rise because, again, you're basically, inflation's going to be very high. It's going to be bad for the bond market. And so, in a country where leaders that a lot of our leaders have come of age in a time where all they know is whatever's good for the bond market is good for America, uh, they look at this and go, This is a fundamental against our, our national security interests. Reality yeah. is, is it's not, it is isn't maybe in the short run. DOD would say it's probably not even anymore in the short run, uh, Department of Defense. Um, it's not, it's very much in our interest to get out of the system in the intermediate long-term. Flip side is the Chinese are saying, look, we absolutely our system will collapse if oil stays priced in dollars. The Russians are saying our system will collapse if oil stays priced in dollars. Uh, the Europeans, same thing. That's why they were building all these pipelines with Russia. It's I don't think they had any of that. You know, maybe there were some illusions about who Putin was, but like, come on. I, I think the bigger thing was, is they knew they needed the flexibility to buy energy in their own currency, ultimately, Uh, to, 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 to to survive, to transition from sort of, you know, the oil age to, you know, whatever follows through sort of the gas age. And Mm -hmm. so all of these fundamental, um, all of these fundamental tensions are pushing against each other. And so then it comes down to, okay, what are you going to do? Well, you know, when it's Iraq who moves to euros, it's simple. You invade them when it's, you know, um, you know, when it's when it's trying to uh, when it when it's other countries, you but the U.S. has never invaded a nuclear armed power. You know, <laughs> Europe is our ally. Japan is our ally. But they still have these real politic issues. They've, they they are their economies will collapse if they don't transition away from dollar monopoly and energy. And so they're they're they are really, really big issues. Um that hopefully you can settle with some sort of monetary conference or some sort of evolution. Or in this case, if there's equal enough power or a big enough threat of nuclear war between, say, the U.S. and Russia or the U.S. and China, uh, then maybe it just can happen instantaneously. And the fallout is felt in, in financial markets and, and it doesn't show up in uh, in war. But these are the types of, you know, you're talking about major inflation major uh, uh, risk of major inflation in the U.S., risk of major uh, collapse in uh, creditor nations, uh, risk of war. These, I mean, these are sort of, you know, sort of these big fourth turning type issues, uh, I think ultimately come out of these situations where you have these fundamental uh, tensions where two different societies, two different systems Find that it's a matter of utmost national security, existential survival, uh, to either continue the status quo or not continue the status quo.
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right. I, you know, there's a great, uh, there's a piece that the uh, Department of Defense put out in 2018. Uh, the title is assessing the strength and manufacturing. Assense, assessing and strengthening the manufacturing and defense industrial base and supply chain resilience, resiliency of the United States. Uh, on page 59, there's a quote, the loss of more than 60,000 American factories, key companies, and 5 million manufacturing jobs since 2000 undermines the capability of the U.S. to meet national defense requirements. Can you walk us through exactly what is this link in between? You kind of keep talking about this hollowing out of the industrial base. Uh, and it can can you walk us through the monetary policy and everything that we're talking about? How does that directly impact our industrial base uh, domestically in the United States?
0: Sure. So ultimately, your competitiveness to make things is is just a function of the currency. If your currency is too strong, uh, then you can't compete in making things against others if you have open borders. And so, uh, the the U.S. dollar as the U.S. dollar's role as global reserve currency is one issue uh, because it requires. Um, complete open capital account, right? So we can't can't put up a whole lot of trade protections for US industry because that would violate the structure of the dollar's reserve status. And then the other issue is the treasury bond, the bigger issue really, is the treasury bond is primary reserve asset. And so if in the system we had before from 46 to 71, the dollar was the reserve currency, but gold was really the reserve, the primary reserve asset. Uh, And after 71, the treasury bond effectively became the primary reserve asset. So basically what that does is that makes uh, Washington deficits, uh, basically deficits without tears. Foreigners have to buy these treasury bonds Mm -hmm. uh, to have the dollars to, um, you know, Basically, the way the system works at that point is is we they sell us stuff. They have to have dollars to have oil, so they have to sell us stuff. So they sell us stuff for dollars. We send them the dollars. Uh, they take the dollars. They buy treasury bonds to store the dollars in, uh, and it amounts to vendor financing that they do for us. And, and there's sort of this virtuous cycle with important side effects, which are, uh, number one, they make sure to keep their currency weak enough to... Uh, Underprice anything we make. Um, and so our industry whittles away. Our ability to produce things whittles away. Uh, our jobs in the middle and working class are offshore to those countries. Um, and so we lose this middle and working class center of the country. And the flip side is, is that you get this massive financialization of the, of the U.S. economy because those dollars, instead of uh, when, when countries get paid those dollars, they recycle those into our financial markets, into treasuries, into mortgages, into stocks. And and so you get um, a significant increase as a percent of GDP in the U.S. of uh, financial markets, you have the financialization of the U.S. economy that we have seen over the last 40, 40 years in particular. Uh, and then you get this complete hollowing out of the manufacturing and production sector, which uh, is all fun and games until- um, you know, you start seeing symptoms of it in 2011. The United States could not build the Bay Bridge in San Francisco. They needed to replace the Bay Bridge in San Francisco, and we couldn't do it. We couldn't build the Bay Bridge. This is 80 years after we built the Golden Gate Bridge. This magnificent uh, piece of architecture construction, which we built remarkably rapidly in the Great Depression, by the way. Uh, 80 years later, we 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 did not have the domestic infrastructure. We had to have China build the Bay Bridge, float the whole thing across the Pacific Ocean on barges, boats, however they did it, and then put it in place there. And you can find these stories online. And now the, the problem here as it relates to that assessing the defense manufacturing supply chain is that's great as long as you don't pick a fight with China, as long right. as China has your interests at heart. Right. And obviously, China hasn't had our interests at heart for a long time. Um, And our politicians, uh, certain of them more than others, I'm not going to get into that, uh, have been willing, shall we say, to to look the other way. Uh, COVID has, I think, changed everybody's mind from the standpoint of uh, it was all fun and games. Uh, The DOD was warning about this stuff 10, 12 years ago. They warned about it in that 2018 piece that you highlighted um, it should have been obvious in 2011. It was to DOD, but not the politicians. You know, it's incredible to me. Nancy Pelosi, you know, has a bridge. She can't even make a bridge to get her citizens from one side of the, of the bay to the other. Um, they have to give, have China make the bay. Uh, that wasn't a problem for them then. Hmm. Um, at any rate, COVID made it obvious to everybody because nobody's constituency was amused when we couldn't produce our own masks, et cetera, et cetera. So that is really... The issue is, as it relates to the defense supply chain, is if, if you're going to fight a war with China,
1: you probably shouldn't have China making a lot of stuff for you because they're probably not going to sell it to you in a war. There are a couple of stories like this throughout history um, where, you know, when the when the Civil War broke out, uh, right, that the North thought it was going to be over so soon that when the fighting broke up, broke out around D.C., everyone brought like chairs, like the equivalent of uh, you know picnic, you know picnic chairs and stuff like that to watch the fight. Like oh, this will be fun. This will be over so soon, right? And when uh, you know Alexander the Great, or maybe it was Philip, uh, his father, was invading Greece, right? They uh, they didn't actually want to send their best warriors because their warriors were competing in the Olympic games. It's like these just symptoms of unbelievable hubris. Uh, I kind of feel like um, are are happening around us, and no one's really confronting. Uh, p- people just don't seem to be aware. And even like a lot of this, the reason I think this is centering around the dollar, right? Is This is where I see the hubris also kind of start to come out. This is where I want to get into the sanctions that we put on Russia and this closing of the FX uh, reserve window because these people are kind of well, you know, the dollar has been the reserve currency for such a long period of time. What what are people going to do? But where are the students of history, man? I, there, there have been reserve currencies before. They all last 80 to 100 years. We are at the statistical historical end of the regime and we're clearly abusing the power. So- I'm getting a little excited, so I'm going to calm myself down. Walk me through, like, do you agree with me? Do you think that, um, you know, well, let's talk about Russia and the closing of the FX reserve. Do you think that's a really big deal? And honestly, Luke, I don't know if you've been paying attention. It doesn't seem like our sanctions have had the intended effect on Russia. It doesn't (laughs) seem like they're bleeding and dying, right? So walk me through the closing of the FX reserve. How effective have these sanctions really been?
0: There, there's nuance about. So I, I'll start with the FX reserve closing, closing that window. Do I think it's mm-hmm. a big deal? Yeah, I think it's enormous. I think we're going to look back in time and see that was every big as, as, um, as, as the closing of the gold window in 71, mm-hmm. uh, because we just told the world your FX reserves in dollars aren't safe. Yeah. Um, you know, they might be safe now, but we've been, we fought with everybody over the last 50 years, pretty much. Yeah. Except right. for maybe the Canadians. Um, uh, so, um, I think it's a really big deal. I think it's not, you know, some people. So much is on, like so much in our society. It's you know, yeah, fin twit, right? Oh, if it didn't happen this week, then it's not happening. Hmm. Yeah, these things take time, right? Um, and and you're seeing, you know, if you're paying attention, you're seeing all of these countries start, you know, uh, India. Uh, opening a gold exchange for price transparency. Uh, Indonesia announced it today. Uh, Turkey buying energy in rubles. Uh, Nigeria opening a gold exchange. Nigeria, people say, so what? Oh, so what? They're the seventh biggest oil exporter in the world. Um, So you're starting to see these pieces that look random, but really appear to be uh, workarounds to the FX Reserve issue, um, all of which probably can't happen unless gold is a much bigger price than it is today. But again, it's small, and, it, and it, it, this headline, Drip drabs. So I, think, I think we'll see when we look back five years from now, maybe sooner, that the FX Reserve's window, I think it will become increasingly obvious how big a deal it was the further we get away from it. Um, the, the other part about have the sanctions hurt the russians yes and no um yes from i'm um, um, you know the reading i've done this the, the people i've talked to uh it has absolutely disrupted their supply chains in some ways pretty notably uh certain key western technological components it's very problematic mm-hmm. um, um in some cases not really like like i i i, I I would love, you know, the federal government to sanction stuff in Ohio, right? And just have the corporations pull out of, pull out of Ohio. Cause I would go grab, you know, I would go rebrand the Starbucks and I would, you know, take over the leases with no cost. And I'd start selling, you know, you know, star Luke coffee out of the same location with a zero lease. And it would be a great business opportunity if I can, you know, if I can source the coffee, which, you know, if you can work around, right. That mm-hmm. You see what I'm getting at with that. Mm-hmm. The other thing where I think sort of no, and this was the one where I just sort of always uh, laughed for lack of a better word. It, ju- it was just the naivete was really surprising to me, which is, there's a fundamental misunderstanding of the elasticity of the demand for energy, which is to say demand, human demand for energy is infinite, right? If I could take a helicopter everywhere I went and and could fly a G five everywhere on vacation, if the energy was free, I would do those things. Every human would, it's awesome. Um, but it's not free, so we can't afford it. Mm -hmm. So The point here is, is that you can say, well, we're going to cut off Russian oil and gas. Great. That sounds great. We're going to self-sanction. The EU is going to stop using it. Well, this is the part where it's completely blown up in their faces and the US's faces. Um, Because, and this is something I said from day one, is you've got to keep everybody inside the tent pissing out. If you don't have China and India on your side who represent whatever that is, uh, 40% of global population. Uh, and oh, by the way, if you look at their per capita energy usage relative to the West, like, they could take all of Russia's production and then some, setting aside logistics for a moment, which are less of a deal for oil, more of a deal for gas. Um, and then it also completely leaves out the elasticity of, of demand from the price standpoint, which is say, great cut Putin's exports by half. Nice job. Well, the price just tripled. Well, you know, or the price just doubled. So if you double prices and, you know, and realistically the math is, you know, you cut his imports bar is his, the the amount of oil he shipped by, I don't know, 20%, we'll say, and the price went up 50%, he's ahead. He has more And you can see this in the data, the current account data for the US or for Russia, they're at all time highs because they're not importing anything anymore uh, from the West at least, or as much. And their revenues are exploding on a dollar basis, because if you cut a little bit of oil out of the global markets, what they do sell is going to go out at a much higher rate. So there's just this sort of, you sort of scratch your head and go, dude, didn't, did they never have an economics 101 class about elasticity of demand and what happens mm. when you sort of take away supply from a very demand elastic good. Mm. And uh, so from that standpoint. Given Russia's balance sheet, which is the best in the world bar none, um, I think they miscalculated. Because really, what what the, what they they us the U.S. and Europe did uh, is they killed Europe and they killed Japan. Yeah. Uh, and so now they're going to have they're having energy crises of varying degrees. Japan's not quite as bad. Europe is getting very close to being
1: a catastrophe uh, within weeks, possibly. Right. Can like can, can you walk us through actually what's happening in Europe? Because you see these energy prices that are getting quoted over there. It's not just uh, gas and natural gas, right? Which look like meme stock. It means the price of electricity, yeah. right? I mean, it's like it's a 10x from where it was three months ago. I mean, how does an economy sustain those type of price increases? What's what's going to happen come winter? It doesn't.
0: It's going to collapse. People are going to freeze and people are going to die. Or their politicians are going to say, "Hi, Washington." One of two things is going to happen. You're either going to start selling dollars and buying euros, or you're going to start selling us a lot more gas, and inflation in the US is going to take off, which is uh, a reaccelerate, accelerate, uh, which is also not going to be uh, happy times. Um, or we're going to call up Putin and we're going to say, fine, we will pay you for your oil in euro, or we'll pay you for your oil in yen, and that will be that. And the real politic of energy. Uh, the threat of people starving and freezing in Europe and Japan will force uh, geopolitical fissures that are, are geopolitical realignments that are completely inconceivable to ninety nine percent of people. But I I think unless something really big changes, I think are inevitable.
1: Yeah. So you know the reason I um, you know when I initially reached out to have this conversation, you've got this great analogy of Bitcoin as the the last functioning fire alarm. And I think one of the reasons uh Bitcoin is interesting um is and I think it's kind of actually implicitly picked up on this this uh discrepancy, right? In between what the Federal Bank or the the Federal Reserve says it wants to do versus what it can actually do. So that's why I kind of think it rips whenever it's associated with that money printer go burr meme, right? Which is, and this is kind of the mantra of the Bitcoiners, they, re, they repeat it uh, almost you know, ad nauseum, but it's you know, money printer go burr, the Fed is going to print, that's what they know how to do, that's what they have to do, and Bitcoin responds to that. Um, so you know, with that outline, I guess, being said, can you, you were kind of, I think, the first one that I heard use this analogy of Bitcoin is the last functioning fire alarm. Can you, in your mind, kind of walk us through how you think about Bitcoin and the role that it might play? Within this kind of tension uh, that the Fed is under,
0: yeah, I think to simplify it, Bitcoin is doing what gold did to Volker. Um, mm. It's just that in the '80s, the Fed and the U.S. more broadly—and uh, I shouldn't ascribe it to Fed—I don't know that for a fact. The U.S. will say U.S. certain U.S. policymakers, because I don't know exactly who it is, but they they figured out how to disable gold as a as a warning metric, which was create lots of paper gold. Um, That's that's what they did. And there was a great article by a gentleman named Peter Hambro about two months ago, maybe not even about two months ago, Mm. um, 40 year veteran of the London bullion market saying, listen, the way gold is manipulated is the creation, the unrelenting or the unrestricted creation of paper gold obligations. Um, not so much a GLD or, or, or futures, futures have two sets, but it's the unallocated gold market where you can pay. I want to own a million, a hundred million dollars in gold done. Boom. I want to own a hundred million dollars in gold done. Well, to source a hundred million in physical would take you like six months, four months these days I hear. Mm. Uh, so that it's just the creation of an accounting entry, a lie, a gold liability that ultimately will be cash settled. If someone shows up too many people show up and demand their gold. They figured out how to fix gold. They figured out how to keep gold from talking about inflation, right? Uh, from t- from telling the truth about inflation. Problem is, is Bitcoin. There's 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 not this unallocated Bitcoin market that they can that they can allow unallocated expansion of 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 Bitcoin derivatives to mask or or mute the uh, the warning alarm of Bitcoin, mm. and similarly. Unlike physical gold, which is a pain in the rear to buy. And, and I say that as someone who likes gold, and who has bought physical gold, it's a pain in the rear to buy. Um, relative to certain other assets, certainly, most you know, stocks, et cetera. It's really easy for the average person to buy Bitcoin, right? You open up Coinbase, you connect, you know, you go through some know your customer and some anti-money laundering stuff, and you connect your bank account, and boom. There you go. And then you can figure it out if you want to take it off the uh, the exchange. There's a whole other sort of world and go down that rabbit hole. But the bottom line is, it's like, oh, I want to buy Bitcoin. Click, click, boop, done. So it's really easy to say, you know, as opposed to gold, where it's really hard to buy physical gold relative to paper gold. uh, It's really easy to buy, quote unquote, physical Bitcoin, right? Actual Hmm. Bitcoin relative to any Bitcoin derivatives. So. Ultimately, I think Bitcoin has just been doing what and and then I think too, the supply side is obviously a, a huge deal as well right? It's a fixed supply 21 million. Um, there's the you know the algorithm that the 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 mining difficulty adjustment that sort of keeps you know the flow of that steady uh, based on on you know any number of factors. So when you put all that together, I to me, again, my initial answer is is I think Bitcoin is just doing what gold would do if it didn't have the gigantic unallocated paper gold market attached to it. And, mm. you know, it's interesting to me when you see, if you look at a chart of Bitcoin in dollar terms, and then you call up a chart of the Turkish lira in dollar terms, they're like the same chart. <laughs> they're like the same chart. And mm. except the lira is falling against the dollar and, and the dollar's falling against Bitcoin. And so mm. that's, and it's, and it's been remarkably And shame on me because sometimes, you know, it, i think it's human nature it's certainly my nature to make this make this whole thing way more difficult than it needs to be and in real time it's always right it's always harder but when bitcoin starts tanking in early december like that was it like you could have literally just closed up shop sold it all gone to the beach had a party for the next 8 months and you'd be you'd be no worse off you'd be way better off because pretty much everything except oil and the dollar went down uh, from from Dece- early december 21 uh, early december 21 so it was very early in indicating that it's been early in highlighting liquidity turns and so i think it's just it's 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 telling the truth about liquidity about dollar liquidity about you know about money printer go burr, to, to yeah. as, as the meme says
1: um so let, let's try to i'd love to get your view on where we go kind of from here. I think we've done a good job of assessing the problem, right, uh, the problem with the energy, the problem with, oh, you know what we actually didn't get to? Shoot, this is a topic for another time then, is entitlements, right, It's something which is very real. right? And I saw you retweeted that, that article, right, which is 10% uh, you know, cost of living adjustment in entitlement life. Uh, and it's like, guys, where do you think this money is going to come from? <laughs> I don't understand. Um, but moving forward from here, right, um, how do, you, how do you see the Fed responding? Because I, I kind of see these two different worlds, um, which is what we've been outlining on recent shows here, which is basically in one direction, they can say, hey, look, uh, we've got inflation. It's an enormous problem. We're going to hike these interest rates up. We're going to, you know, get unemployment back to something that's relatively within, uh, you know, we're going to sacrifice unemployment basically to crush demand and take inflation back down. And that's what we're going to do. Or this kind of door number two, right, which is to say, well, we're going to hike rates a little bit. But we're going to let inflation run above that, and actually, really, the inflation rate that we really want to see as a central bank is two percent was wrong for reasons X, Y, and Z. Instead, it's going to be four or five percent uh, roundabout, and uh, we'll keep yields slightly below there, and then just gradually inflate the debt away. If you had to kind of choose, do, you see it as as those kind of two options for the central bank, and if so, which one do you kind of more lean towards? <laughs>
0: I see them wrestling with those two options. I think it's going to be neither one of those two options. I think Mm -hmm. they are, this is the same thinking that got us to say, well, let's just cut Russia's oil exports by 20%, and we'll cut his revenues by 20%. Like it sounds really good in the theoretical ivory tower, and it's total bullshit. (laughs) Um, Because they're not, they're not, they're not dealing with the real world right in the same way that we cut Russia's exports we cut Russian oil exports by 20% the price impact more than makes him whole the same problem here if we cut jobs uh, you know we 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 raise unemployment to a certain level to cut demand like that's fine as long as we completely ignore the US debt situation which is we had a stock bubble we had a housing bubble we had all these bubbles right we had high inflation and everyone says oh all these bubbles. Well, no one mentions we had a tax receipt bubble because of all that stuff. You had Mm. a rise in tax receipts that was absolutely unprecedented. I think it was up like 40% year over year at one point. And when it was up 40% year over year to all-time highs, it barely covered, it was barely above just the cash out of entitlements and treasury spending. It's incredible. It literally took this incredible tax receipt bubble driven by this incredible everything bubble to cover entitlements which you know, we're spending 2.8 2.9 trillion a year in entitlements right now cats cash out every year growing six just with enrollment that does not include if we raise cost of living by 10% we should talk about for next year and then treasury spending we're still running treasury spending in almost a trillion a year. so the whole will reduce demand yeah will it get inflation down? yeah there's no secondary thinking like the Russian oil situation to go oh crap. GDP is now down, tax receipts are now down, and now our receipts are below our true interest expense, which are just our $2.9 trillion growing 6% a year entitlements, $2.8 trillion growing 6% a year entitlements, and maybe growing 10% or 16%, and our trillion a year treasury spending, which, oh, by the way, treasury spending is going up because we finance a third of our debt at under a year. So it's going to be a third of a debt's going to reprice all much higher in a year. So and what happens when our true interest expense is back above our receipts? Well, either we print the difference, money printer go burr, or we don't. And if we don't, then the bond market is going to be dictating to the United States government what rate it borrows at. Oh, by the way, the, the Defense Department wants eight hundred fifty billion, or oh wait, no, it's nine hundred billion because we just sent another fifty billion to Ukraine. No, wait, it's nine hundred fifty billion because we just sent another fifty billion to Ukraine. Oh, we're we're we're, we're trying. We're going to do the. Uh, we're going to reshore everything. That's another two hundred. So now the interest rate is going to go up, 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 and then the treasury spending numbers are going to go up, 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 because all that that's going to reprite. You see, you get into this debt-death spiral. So yeah, on a, on, the, on a surface level of first-order thinking, yeah, great. Send unemployment up and reduce demand. Real world, it's bullshit. It's not going to work. Mm. Um, the second option is just as much bullshit in the real world. It's not going to work, which is, hey, let's run inflation 4 or 5%. Um, and let's keep rates pinned at two and we'll inflate it away. You know, or we'll play, keep rates pinned at three and then we'll inflate it away. This, that is ultimately a dollar issue. And that's not a fed decision that anything around the dollar goes to treasury. If you come out and say, we're going to inflate at five we or to keep rates at two, who's the sucker at the card table who holds the debt? I'm not going to hold an ounce of debt. I already don't. Why would I hold that I know real rates against my cost of living are way negative. But if they tell me explicitly, like, we're going to screw you for the next five years, 10 years to get out of this, the Fed's balance sheet there, they're like, well, we'll just be able to do this and maybe we'll have to, no, the Fed will have to buy the whole frigging bond market, like, next week. Mm. It'll just be like, whoom. The bond market will test them right away where they will send rates toward the the level in the same way that the Japanese bond market is being tested, same way that every peg in the world. You'll be talking about pegging rates at a negative real rate. The bond market, the whatever the dollar, global dollar bond market is, which will all be affected by this, you know, the euro dollar market, right, is what's, I don't know. I've seen estimates anywhere from 13 trillion to 70 trillion. Who knows what the number is? Let's pick 35. It will all show up at the Fed's door and say, you're going to take 2% a year for me? Sold to you. You buy it. You're going hmm. to peg yields at three. Great, take it all. And the Fed's balance sheet goes from nine trillion to fifty trillion in a year, and right. the dollar gets crushed, and inflation goes crazy, and and and. So like, they have these two options of how these things could work. Like the only way one of these two options can work is if they invent a, a time machine. They get a flux capacitor, an eighty-eight DeLorean. They go back in time forty years, maybe sixty years, and they don't do stupid shit. Sorry, I'm getting worked up now, right? They don't do stupid policies that leave us with, you know, a bunch of debt and nothing to show for it, like invading Iraq, invading Afghanistan, et cetera, et cetera, you know, offshoring stuff to China.
1: Yeah, I think one of the biggest problems, too, and I actually think they know this, I think they get this, um, is actually the impact that monetary policy has had on like the youth of art like if you talk to a young person if if you're if you're over 45 or 50 and you're listening to this podcast talk to your kids or other young people about what they think about the future of america it might surprise you you might get some very surprising responses i'm saying this because i had this i'm in big sky montana right now my family is all here and we had this gathering the other night and i was hearing from the younger people at the table some like it's a pretty crazy radical thing from like what I thought was like radical stuff from very smart, educated people, you know, which was, well, why do we have to work so hard, right? Like essentially like we're never going to be able to afford any of this stuff anyway. Like who cares? Like run the debt. Like what's happened to Greece? Someone literally said, well, what's, what's been so bad about Greece? It's like, <laughs> are you kidding me? You know, I think it's led to some really wonky internal stuff. So maybe that explains to your earlier point, I hate to always bring it back to this, but why Nancy Pelosi has taken a break from being the world's most successful hedge fund manager and toured around (laughs) Taiwan. Because, you know, like, you know, I'm sitting there scratching my head being like, what could the reason possibly be for this? Why does it seem like we're trying to antagonize and stir the pot? And maybe, maybe the answer is, um, you know, you need something for everyone to to get behind, and I and I'm increasingly starting to see the U.S. as less of a a country, you know, just this great nation, right? Blah blah blah, and more of just as a traditional empire, right? And I would say the one thing that maybe I could point you back uh, and say, you know, sold to you is the U.S. could turn around and say, no, 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 uh, you've misunderstood the relationship here. You will buy my bonds because at the end of the day, fiat is a system backed by. Men with guns, you know, and uh, it maybe bonds that these bonds that we sell are less of uh, hey recycling profits and more of like a hey uh, this is the tribute that you pay to you know empire here. I I don't I don't know what your thoughts are on on that that whole relationship, but that could be interesting too. That
0: that made more sense when we were a bigger part of GDP globally, right? Like Mm -hmm. and when you know when the jap when the Chinese military was much much smaller. Um, you know, I think that describes basically the era from 1989 through—I don't know if it was 2015, 2016, 2018—where um, suddenly the balance of power um, shifted. Right? I mean, Donald Trump was a lot of things. One of one of the things, one of the things I found uh, charming <laughs> in this sort of uh, way about him. But sometimes he would accidentally tell you the truth. He mm. was so blunt and, and, and brutish, and but sometimes he would tell you the truth. He told the Germans, he told them on camera on CNBC, energy energy trade is way different than normal trade. I'm all for free trade, but energy trade is way different. Why are, why are we protecting you while you're buying all this gas from the Russians? That was in 2018 he said that. Mm. Uh, similarly, I think it was in 2019, it was like, if the Chinese want to take Taiwan, there isn't a damn thing we can do about it. We're 6,000 miles away. and he, He's right. He's right. He wasn't supposed to say that. But, but like, what are we going to do? I mean, it's, I, I, I hear lots of people saying we should, we should stop it. I don't see those same people signing their kids up for the United States Marine Corps. You know, People always want to talk about skin in the game. Like, Sign your kid up to be in the first wave. Then tell me what I should do with my boys. Because otherwise, shut up. I don't want to hear it. And that's like the, that's the other mentality, right? Of, you know, Hey, the the empire will force you to which empire, where are you sourcing the soldiers from? Because like the, 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 the internet has allowed a lot of the soldiers to realize that what they spent the last 20 years fighting for, you know, and Oh, by the way, they got to see that we spent the last 20 years taking Afghanistan from the Taliban and then giving it back to the Taliban. Um, at, at massive cost of human life, at massive cost to human treasure, a uh, U.S. treasure, U.S. life. Um, but I think another big part of it is you come out to where you generally oversource your U.S. military from. And they're like, explain to me why I'm going to go bleed for a you know." You talk about the youth, right, of this this different view. Explain to me why I'm going to go bleed in some faraway place fighting the Russians or fighting the Chinese
1: For an economic system, that's not my interest, not my family's interest. I think that's what that's the, that is the tension that I'm starting to see as well. Um, This is a, this is a, uh, I've used this analogy before. This isn't totally right, but I don't think it's totally wrong either. Like if you look at, let's say you take COVID and World War II is because people love to make that comparison, right? COVID is like World War II and we need to muster all this stuff and it doesn't matter, print the money. Um, Because that was the attitude back in World War II, right? There were ideologies that were bumping up into each other. Everyone in the world was fighting. There were more important things back then than the deficit, right? Which was probably the right way to look at things. What we did, though, at the end of that war, which was all of those GIs that they came back over, they said, hey, we need to do something for these young GIs that – laid down their life for for the cause. Um, and then we got the GI Bill, right, which was the greatest wealth transfer at that point in global, in, uh, you know, world history. And that came in the form of, uh, you know, free uh, education or heavily subsidized education, uh, access to mortgage, access to small business credit, it drove this huge boom, right? And that was actually kind of a wealth transfer from the old to the young, right? These were young GIs that went over and fought. And if you view COVID as a similar conflict where we um, organized monetary policy to do a big wealth transfer. What we actually did was a big transfer of wealth from the old to the old because it all went to owners of financial assets like stocks and homes. And in a, in a supreme ironic twist, it's actually the same generation. It was the boomers on both sides of it. They got, they got it on the way up and now they got it there. So there's this – yeah, if you talk to young people, um, it, they feel incredibly disenfranchised, I think. And then you, know, you see that in, in finally just who are our candidates for president. Uh, And who are the people that are controlling, you know, you got Nancy Pelosi on the left and Mitch McConnell on the right. And it's like, God, it's just been so long since I felt represented from a person in the United (laughs) States. I'm like, people talk about stuff that I care about for what, like, come on. Um, So I, I don't know if you view it like that, or if that's like too blunt of a, or not necessarily accurate, but I'm starting to come around to that viewpoint.
0: I, I dropped off one of my, one of my boys at college last week and we were driving around the town. We were in Southern Ohio and we stop at this, you know, lookout point. Somebody said we should go see pretty view. And this older couples there guys taking photographs and we we sit down, kind of start to talk and it turns out he's a 75 year old guy and he was from the Youngstown area. And, you know, he had, he worked his whole life and he got this pension and then, when the great financial crisis hit, his pension got you know taken over by the PBGC, the, the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corp., which as a practical matter means you usually lose, I don't know, you get paid out like 10 cents on the dollar, right? Mm. Um, and so his pension got whacked. Now he's he's made adjustments, but he said something so profound. He goes, what I don't understand is why I got cut 10 cents on the dollar and they paid out all those Wall Street bankers at par. You know, no, he didn't say a par, of course. Right. But he said why, you know, they right. got to keep all their stock options and they got bailed out and all that. Why didn't I get bailed out? And I think if if we when you talk about these dynamics of disenfranchisement, I don't think it's just the youth, although I think that's a big part of it. Because I, I do agree with your assessment in terms of. Um, the, the the transfer. The, the transfer of wealth went you know, to the owners of assets again. In, in the COVID crisis, which happened to be the boomers, um, by and large. But I think there was also this, this the inequity of how, I think in particular, the 2008 crisis was handled will go down as one of the greatest strategic and political mistakes made in the entirety of United States history. Yeah, you um, right. We 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 allege, you know, Wall Street alleges to be capitalist, allegedly. If it was really capitalist, you would have had a capitalist solution, which is they screwed up. Bankruptcy, bondholders take over the company, re- bondholders get the equity, existing equity holders and option holders are wiped out, zeroed out. Next time you'll be more careful with your capital. You won't do those crazy things, and that's how you sort of prevent these 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 bubbles from happening. Because then everybody that lost all that equity um, would 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 not do it again. Everyone would see it, and and there was a great article in the Atlantic uh, by a gentleman named um, Simon Johnson, the former chief economist of the IMF mm. in May of '09, and he called it the quiet coup. The quiet coup, think about that. The former chief economist called the quiet coup. And what he referred to is, is what I'm seeing in the U.S. is so familiar to me. I've seen it in countless emerging markets over and over and over. And what we do is always the same thing. We always do the same thing. We go in, we break up the banks, we wipe out the equity, we, ha- we, we do capitalism. We've, we have the bondholders take over the company. We wipe out the oligarchs. We separate the oligarch or goal arrangements with the political system. We turn over the leadership and we start anew. And then away we go it goes and the us had the exact same problem and they did the exact opposite solution which was the oligarchs got more powerful the fun, they didn't right so i see this disenfranchisement all the way around because people go well, wait a second you can't tell me we're capitalists and then deal with homeowners and mortgage holders and pensioners in a v- very capitalistic way right and then deal with the elites and policymakers in a
1: socialist way, a communist way, essentially planned way, and expect that to work. Like, yeah, I'm with you. It's privatizing the gains and socializing the losses. How did they think that was gonna work? People were like, oh, why are our politics so toxic? Really? Really? <laughs>
0: are you surprised by that? Like, come
1: on, man. Yeah. Luke, um, let's let's conclude here by saying, let's let's take some aggregate of policymakers. Let's say it's like the Fed, the Treasury, and kind of the, the government writ large. What do you expect, you know, policymakers to do over the course of the next 12 months to confront the challenges that we're faced? Let's say domestically inflation, let's say internationally, more just kind of geopolitical strife. What do you anticipate policymakers doing in the response to be? And then part two. If you were in charge, right? We appoint Luke Groman, uh, you know, uh, president, uh, you know, in, in whatever of the United States. What would you be doing instead?
0: <laughs> I think they're going to do the right the right thing by accident after doing the wrong thing first, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's the old Winston Churchill quote: "Is the Americans always do the right thing after they've exhausted all the alternatives?" <laughs> so. They're just about out of alternatives unless the Martians come and we can kick all the debt upstairs to Mars, in which case we can kick this can forward. But I don't think that's going to happen. So question one, what are they going to do? I think they're going to over tighten. I think they're going to create a brief crash risk off. They're going to go, oh, crap. And and that'll get inflation down to, I don't know, four or five CPI, four or 5% CPI. But the financing mechanism for the united states government is going to break um, in some way similar to the repo rate spike right whether it's in the treasury market or its overnight rates or there'll be something that breaks and that that, uh, that directly affects the funding of the us government and that will not be allowed to occur and at that point the fed will go oh crap and they will begin regrowing their balance sheet with cpi still at 4 or 5 6% and i think 12 months from now at some point in the next 12 months probably towards the end of it more likely than the next 3 or 4 or 5 say Uh, I think we're going to see CPI in the United States uh, at in excess of 10%. And I think that will force the Fed into sort of uh, the end game, if you will, which is yield curve control, um, where they are explicitly capping yields at a level. And they will end up buying a big chunk of the bond market like we talked about before in a compressed period of time. Inflation will run really hot. They'll tell you it's not running as hot as it is. It doesn't matter. Wage growth will go crazy. And it'll end up being basically like a giant debt jubilee uh, for sort of uh, for sort of everybody, anybody with fixed rate debt. Uh, you know, if you've got... You know, if you got a full 3% mortgage, a 4% mortgage, and your wages are growing 15, it doesn't take too much of that where you got your house for free, basically. Um, and and that's sort of what needs the debt needs to be written down. And that's why I say I think they're going to do the the right thing by accident. And I think the US is gonna go through a compressed period of uh high inflation on the other side of this policy mistake on the downside. And whether that's, you know, three years at Let's just say twelve to twenty percent CPI, uh, and that will get debt to GDP low enough where the Fed can then actually normalize policy without blowing something up, and they will. And away we go. Uh, that's what I think they're going to do. What would I do if I was uh, Emperor Luke or King Luke? As, as funny as that is, I would, I would be bold like they were uh, at at Camp David. Um, in in doing something unilaterally, I would come out and say, "Listen, this has been a great deal. It's no longer a good deal for us. It's being used against us. Here's the new deal. We are going to run. We are going to uh, uh, print two trillion dollars, and we are going to massively invest in semiconductor infrastructure, light light rail, and high speed rail infrastructure." uh, education, uh, such that, you know, engineers, teachers, uh, certain, you know, certain key you know, doctors, uh, they get free school. You want to be like Luke Grom to go study finance and accounting. You're paying full freight plus something to pay for them. you know, pay part of their freight. Um, and I do a new, and and, and, and by the way, the 2 trillion, it's not just this year. I'm going to do 2 trillion in a year for the next 5 years.
1: Mm.
0: And the Fed is going to keep the 10-year treasury yield at 3%. It's not going higher. I don't care what CPI is. I let CPI go, I let money supply go, and I just say, you know what? Inflation's going to go nuts and so what? We're going to we're going to rebuild things and at the end of that 3-year span of time Debt to GDP as a percentage has collapsed. GDP has skyrocketed. Wages have skyrocketed. You've basically uh, massively turbocharged uh, infrastructure growth, reshoring growth, restrengthened the defense supply chain, uh, turbocharged a, a, a reeducated, reinvigorated youth where suddenly they actually believe that the country's looking out for them. Their leaders are looking out for them. Uh, and then we go from there. Um, then the Fed can, norm- at some point, you have the equivalent of the 1951 Fed Treasury Accord where they say, okay, Fed and Treasury are separating again. And, you know, Fed's going to be independent and they're not going to monetize the Treasury market at three anymore. Um, they'll probably be sitting with a, I don't know, geez, $30, $40 trillion balance sheet at that point. Who cares? Who cares? Because we will have this, re- we will have reused it to build this this infrastructure. That the productivity growth. When you talk about the, I mean, you know, what's what's what was what was the expense on the Eisenhower Highway system, right? It, it, mm. Massive productivity gains. Same thing as if you know, nuclear infrastructure, semiconductor infrastructure, um, you know, high-speed rail infrastructure. Uh, all these things. Uh, there's just such so, so much low-hanging fruit if we're willing to let inflation go and to let the bond market go. And it's time to let the bond market go. Um, mm. It's not in our interest anymore to listen to people like larry summers and listen to people like uh dudley and say we need to we need to raise unemployment to save the bond market dude you can't afford the bond market without negative real rates it's over Mm. so you might as well take the initiative and do something bold which is what king luke or emperor luke would do
1: amazing you know i the reason i i mean i I can't i have no idea right if that would work or not i love that it's bold i what, what i do think as well uh to your point about just productivity um, is, you know, when that something like that was implemented with the new deal, right? It wasn't like, hey, let's go nuts. But it basically, like, let's spend as much as we need to on on infrastructure to get productivity up. You know, not all debt is the same. If it's, if it's debt that produces, uh, if it's productive debt, and it actually leads to GDP and new infrastructure and yada yada, then that's actually good. I think the big tragedy of how we've spent uh, over COVID is like, look at what we did. We printed these trillions of dollars and what happened? Meme stocks, off, right? Like all the riskiest tech stocks, like the Pelotons, the Zooms, et cetera, they all zoomed up like this, went down like that. And what have we got for it? A huge waste of time, huge misallocation of capital, huge misallocation of human capital, enormous waste of time. And everyone just kind of saying, well, you know, F me, you know? So I, 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 like, I like Emperor Luke's plan. Um, Luke, we, we've already gone over time here and you've already been super generous. Um, if folks, uh, you've, and you've got, I see the poster in the back there of FFTT, uh, forest for the trees. Um, yeah, exactly. Give it, give it the the little visual there. If folks want to find out more about you and your work, subscribe to forest for the trees, which I highly recommend. What is the best way to do it? I think it checks out at, uh,
0: FFTT LLC.com. Uh, and, Find out a little bit more about our different uh, institutional and mass market product offerings there. Uh, you can also uh, follow me on
1: Twitter. I got a, as you know, a pretty tw- active Twitter feed at, at Luke Grohman, L U K E G R O M mm, E N. Awesome, Luke. Well, thanks very much. Appreciate you coming back on the show. I'll have to do it again soon. Absolutely. Thanks for having me back on, Michael. Cheers.